Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and we here at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission are in a season of transition. That organizational transition, which we'll talk about more soon, will include a change for this podcast show as well. Many of you have listened to Capital Conversations for the past three to five years, of which have seen both challenges and opportunities for Christian public engagement in D.C. And we are all so honored that you joined us for the wide range of conversations about the ERLC's public policy advocacy work and how to think about the big issues and news stories of the day as we engage our neighbors and our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that brings me to this episode today. It's going to be part one of a two-part final show with this current ERLC team in Washington, D.C. And this final show, which will air in two parts with the second episode releasing next week, will be an opportunity for us to say goodbye to all of you, reflect on God's faithfulness, talking about the issues of the day as we then open our sights for the journeys ahead. So here for one last time are my ERLC colleagues, Chelsea Patterson-Soblick and Travis Wusso. Chelsea, Travis, welcome back to the Leland House Studio Roundtable in person, where there's an actual roundtable for this special two-part final episode of Capital Conversations. Bittersweet. It is. I, I'm, I'm feeling just sweet emotions. It's good to, it's good to be back <laughs> around this table with you guys. Sweet emotion. That uh, is an Aerosmith song, right? Sweet emotion. Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's kind of what I heard as soon as you said that. How many song references can we fit? We've got One Last Time. One Last Time by Hamilton. That's right. I don't think copyright laws will let us use any of those. But I'll see how many I can work into the show. Okay, yeah, yeah. I won't throw away my shot. (laughs) 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 Nice. Uh, So the transition we're we're talking about, uh, the elephant on the other side of this round table, (laughs) if you will, uh, in May of this year, 2021, Our president, Russell Moore, announced that he was moving to the magazine Christianity Today, uh, where he will be a public theologian there. Uh, And uh, June 1st was his last day as president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I just have to say what a ride it has uh, has been. Um, Since since that news and, and that transition began, uh, my wife and I have welcomed another child <laughs> into our into our home. Uh, so you know, there's been there's been that. But for us, hey, you're, you're here, technically on paternity leave. I, I technically this this, I technically this podcast am. is a potential lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Calling you back from paternity leave well, to come work with us. Well, you know, they tell you when you work for a lawyer, you can't sue. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Travis. Uh, no, I, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's been uh, an absolute whirlwind. And Chelsea, I think you said it well. Uh, I mean, the number of times I have, I have texted somebody, emailed somebody, or, you know, said to somebody in a personal conversation, this has all just been enormously, enormously bittersweet. I, I know I I know I feel this way personally. I think I can speak uh, for both of you and, and certainly the rest of our colleagues at URLC. We are thrilled for the opportunity uh, before not not just Doctor Moore, but uh, for his whole the Moore family uh, and just this new season of their life and ministry. He has served faithfully, uh, been a model of character and, and integrity in a time of cultural, political, and even I think our. ERLC board chairman even said, uh, at times, denominational chaos. 
and Dr. Moore served for uh, eight years to the day. Uh, as I was writing the the press release about that announcement, I, I found that really, really interesting uh, that it was June 1st, 2013 was his first official day on the job as president of the RLC. Uh, and then June 1st, 2021 was his last. And, uh, you know, two terms kind of works out, kind of works out that way. And, you know, there's another reference to Hamilton one last time. Uh, it all started with the George at the top, but uh, it's all been enormously bittersweet because this team has just been an incredible honor to to serve alongside. So uh, here on Capital Conversations, we we wanted to have a like I said, a final episode of sorts. Really, this is a final episode with this particular crew of people. This show, which we'll talk about in a little bit, has gone through multiple uh, different iterations, and there will be probably a new season on this channel. So stay subscribed to it. And in the meantime, where when there are not shows coming out on the Capital Conversations channel, uh, check out the ERLC podcast, uh, where which is which is ongoing. Uh, Chelsea wants to say something about the ERLC podcast, or you can also go back and listen to past episodes. Or yeah, you of can just Capital stay away from that from that show and listen to the past <laughs> both, episodes of Capital Conversations. <laughs> but yes, we we thought it would be we thought it would be appropriate and uh, and good uh, to take some time and uh, and to reflect. So. Travis, thoughts on thoughts on the transition where where we find ourselves as a as a as a team before we jump into some of the particulars here? Yeah, I think these you know these moments of transition you know cause you to do a lot of reflecting. And I mean, I, I remember when Dr. Moore came to came to ERLC. We I had gotten to know his uh, his team uh, when when they were all still at, at Southern Seminary and. You know, the, it was that transition really that that I mean, I, I always sort of knew about the ERLC, but it sort of introduced me to, um, you know, introduced me to the organization in a new way, and and in in some ways, you know, set you know set the trajectory of my life in important ways. You know, I mean, it was it was really uh, it was really that that relationship that that led me here. Well, led you here is in Washington D.C., but first led you and your family. Uh, across the pond. Yeah, that's true. Over to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it was, and 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 I think it's it's one of the things that that I have loved so much about working here is that it's we're 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 a small team. I, I like to think that we uh, punch above our weight. People are usually surprised to hear how small we are as an organization, um, and and how much we do with the budget uh, that we have. But you know, I, I think the the project in Jerusalem is an example of that. That. Um, you know, is is an example of having crazy idea and and trying it, and um, you know, having the you know the backing of a of a really talented group of people to make the most of an opportunity like that. And you know, we've certainly seen that here in Washington as well. I mean, our our team here is is um, you know is small by DC standards, but you know, we have we have a we I mean, we've been blessed. Uh, to have a really talented team here, but also you know a partnership with you know some of the finest professionals I've ever worked with uh, in you know in Nashville. So you know it, it is it is definitely you know it's, it, it's it's definitely bittersweet. I think you know this this transition, Dr. Moore's transition, you know caught all of us by surprise, um, and it's it, it's it's caused all of us to to sort of take stock of of where we are and and what's next and all of that. But I am most of all. Am overwhelmed with gratitude for the opportunity to have gotten to do what I've gotten to do for the last few years, for uh, the privilege of getting to work with such a great team of people, and 
you know, and, and grateful uh, for the support of the SBC to, to get to do this. It's, it, it has been a, it's been truly the, an honor of my career. Yeah, I'll just say, you know, Dr. Moore is someone I have respected for a number of years um, and had a good relationship with him and the organization before I came to work for the organization. He wrote the foreword to my first book, um, which was such an honor. And so our our paths had crossed professionally before getting to join staff, but uh, joined staff almost three years ago, two and a half, three years ago um, in our Washington, D.C. office and have just adored getting to do the work we've gotten to do to work collectively towards, you know, working on some of the the biggest problems the world is is facing, um, you know, whether that's pro-life issues or, you know, working on behalf of persecuted people around the world. It's been a true joy to get to work alongside y'all and alongside our, our Nashville colleagues on behalf of Southern Baptist. But um, I think, you know, I came to work for the organization because I love the work that y'all were doing and that Dr. Moore was doing and um, just really respected how the organization has carried itself and glad to be a small part of it. Well, you, you haven't been a small part of it, Chelsea. And I, no, and not I think at all. that's, not at all. you know, and it's, it's one of the things that I think is so, is, is really so special about this team. You know, we've had a lot of changes over the years. I know that Jeff, you're going to kind of talk about the, just the history of this podcast, but um, you know, but it, it's, it's one of the fun things about, uh, about what this office has been, although Jeff, you're sort of the constant. Yeah, <laughs> it's been, you, you, it's been, you, you and I have uh, been in have been in this together for the last four and a half years. Yeah, um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it's it, it's been so fun. I mean, our our teams look different, um, kind of in every in every season. But you know, Chelsea, this this last season's been especially uh, especially rich having you know getting to work with you. No, absolutely. To amen to that, but yeah, you you mentioned it, Travis. That I was gonna that I was gonna talk about uh, the history of this podcast, and we're we're gonna get into that as well as uh, uh, looking back at some of the some of the highlights of our policy work here in DC, uh, and and also take stock of what is work that that is ongoing and uh, in in things that you know, aren't, aren't victories, but still frustrations and, and still part of our, our callings to continue working on. Um, and, and then at the, uh, at the end of this final episode, uh, we're going to be joined by our friend of the dispatch, David French, uh, to talk about, uh, talk about all of this and, and be looking for those, uh, those signposts of hope, if you will, about uh, what comes next for Christian political engagement. Because, uh, as I said in the intro, and as I've said in the intro, over the last three years, in in, in different ways, uh, but as we as we landed on and have said for at least the last year or so, the aim of the show has always been to help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. And there's not anybody that uh, that we think could do that better with us here on this final episode of sorts uh, than our friend David French. So really, really looking forward to that. All right, so let's begin by talking a bit about the the history of of this of this podcast. This ERLC podcast about public policy has really enjoyed a, a wide range of hosts around this table, um, all with a similar purpose, which was always to to kind of give our audience, give people in the convention and just the broader uh, evangelical world and, 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 and Christians in America, a look into the work of the ERLC in Washington, D.C., working on policy, working on these big cultural news issues. Uh, and, and this podcast began with our former colleagues, Matt Hawkins and Andrew Walker, with a blog by the same name as the pod. It was called Canon and Culture. Travis, you were a guest on Canon and Culture when you moved uh, to the Middle East. So it started as that. 
then eventually, I, I don't think I would recommend going back to listen to that episode. That was, <laughs> it, was, it was early in my. Those are early in your podcasting <laughs> career. Um, so then, uh, Matt eventually would become the solo host. I, I think probably after I got here in in 2017 to this office, uh, and that's when it it took on the title of Capital Conversations, which was a uh, which was like our events that we did on the hill mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill. So we thought, okay, podcast that'll be good. Aligning our branding, aligning was, was really our really branding. smart. See, Julie, if you're listening, our <laughs> Our director of external affairs is all about alignment. We were <laughs> we were ahead of you back in 2017. Uh, and so under that new banner of Capital Conversations, Travis, you joined the table. Stephen Harris, another one of our former colleagues, joined the show. Started interviewing people, started still really talking about what were we advocating for in any given, in any given week here in D.C. Uh, then in the fall of 2018, I moved... Uh, over into the host chair, repainted the walls of the studio black, uh, <laughs> and we rebranded, and, and then and we all became junior employees. <laughs> we all became junior junior co-hosts. Well, office uh, and, there. <laughs> and then uh, we we really at that point, and you were also gracious to go along with my brainstorming session. Then we rebranded and uh, and and really distilled the aim of the show there uh, to, and then this was a quote really from. Stephen Stephen Harris because he used to he used to say this around the office and it was really motivating to us and we thought this could this could work for the show too quote to foster a new evangelical imagination for political engagement and then shortly after that in the fall of 2018 Chelsea's when you came aboard at the ERLC and began your podcasting career you're already a published author uh, and then you took to the spoken word. And so, you know, as we as we think back on the show and the different iterations that it's had, and really over the last three years that the three of us and Stephen as well were around the table, what were some of your favorite interviews that we did on the podcast? Chelsea, we'll start with you. Jeff, this is one that you and I did together, but I've got to say, interviewing Yuval Levin was a highlight. I was giddy and nervous to get to chat with him. He's one of those people that I'll read anything he writes and love getting to talk to him. And I had just finished his new book, A Time to Build, right before we interviewed him. And it was just such a good conversation and really respect him, appreciate him, and love that he he gave us some of his time. Another interview that stuck with me, um, I don't know if you'll remember this, we interviewed Melissa Odin, who's an abortion survivor. Oh, of course. Of you course. and I came in, it was snowing. This was pre-COVID, so we didn't know how to do things online as well <sighs> as we know how to do it now. But you and right. I came in on a snow day. I yeah. think we both took the bus in on a snow day. Yeah, no, um, I remember that. Yeah. Came in, interviewed her. I cry easily. I was crying during that episode, but it, it just, yeah. it, her story really stuck with me. We were interviewing her right around the Born Alive discussion on the Hill, um, and, and her interview really stood out to me. No, I, I absolutely remember that interview. I mean, it's an example of, this is something that Gary Lancaster, our former audio engineer, said to us when we had him join us on the show that he always appreciated when we were able to make these big policy debates real for mm-hmm. real personal stories. He mentioned yeah. DACA and kids affected by our immigration inconsistencies. Yeah. Uh, Melissa is an example mm-hmm. of that on the on the pro-life, particularly in the born alive bills. And and it was such a good interview. I'll never forget it. And we replayed it a couple times mm-hmm. uh when that when that debate would come up. So oh man, those were those were great. And and yeah. Yuval Levin's, I mean, a time to build feels like one of those books that everybody on our staff read and reference. Ought to read. Yeah. Everyone should read yeah. it. Ought should, to read, should, read, yeah. read again. Yeah. No, for sure. Tra- Travis, what about you? What's a what's a favorite episode or two? Well, I mean, interviewer too. I the I mean, I I really I, I was supposed to be on. I can't remember what came up with the Yuval Levin episode. There was some, there, were, there was something came up, and I wasn't able to join for it. 
but it's a it's a great episode. And just to say, I mean, you know, I think it's easy, especially these days, to sort of listen to a podcast and think, ah, well, I've I got the point of this book. I mean, it's it is a book that's worth reading and rereading, um, especially in this time when everyone is is so skeptical of our institutions. Um, you know, I think the episodes that really stick out in my mind are are the the ones with um, uh, I think we've we've interviewed him two or three times, uh, but with Mati Friedman, a uh, dear friend of mine um, in in Israel, to help us decode what's happening uh, in the Middle East. And um, his his insights are great as always, but um, but those are two that really uh, that really stick out for me. Yeah, it's it's funny that you when we were talking before this and you mentioned Mati, I was like, man, that was a fantastic episode. And I've been reading Mati since, uh, reading his articles since that conversation because, you know, you you brought him to the show is like, oh, my friend Monty. Yeah, you, you <laughs> it'll you, be you, great. You you underestimated. And in my ignorance, I underestimated. I was like, all right, we're gonna talk to Travis's friend. Uh, and uh, you got it's some fantastic. cool friends, Travis. You got some <laughs> well, cool friends. I, I lucked out. I fell into a cool crew when we lived in when we lived in Jerusalem. Yeah, no, Monty. What about was great. you, Jeff? Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before. I think I probably mentioned this when uh, Matt Hawkins and I did a, uh, a. It was for the hundredth episode countdown. of Capital Conversations. <laughs> yeah, we did a did a little bit of countdown, and I, and I mentioned it on that one. Um, but I have to say, still looking back over all the interviews we've done, it was the episode that uh, we did in the summer of 2019 with Kenneth Bay. So Kenneth mm-hmm. Bay, the longest held U.S. prisoner in North Korea. And we talked about his experience in a hard labor camp there. Uh, Kenneth, as a as a Christian, was uh, taking uh, tourist trips through North Korea. He was he was living uh, in China at the time. Uh, so he's an American citizen, born I think in Washington State, uh, up in the Seattle area. Uh, but Kenneth's story, I mean, it, it was just amazing because we had him here. Uh, we had him here for. So that was during the 2019 International Religious Freedom Summit. And so we were doing a side event on religious freedom in North Korea. And uh, so we were able to have Kenneth in the studio. I mean, sitting right there, that chair. And there's just something totally insane about talking to somebody who had been in a North Korea hard labor camp and his story of the Holy Spirit uh, comforting him in that time and then eventually being released um, was was just... uh, I mean, gosh! Again, talk about making our policy issues real. Um, yeah. It it made it real, and and that was a that was a fantastic conversation with him. And and uh, and this will transition us to the next thing I want to I want to get y'all's thoughts on as we reflect. Um, it also is a good example of some of the policy work that we've as a team have been able to be a part of under Dr. Moore's leadership uh, these past eight years. That is just man, it's something to be really really grateful for and. And uh, and even really proud of the work that we've done, and I think about that not just as an interesting episode, but the the work that we did on international religious freedom with partners in Malaysia, um, on North Korea, and most recently on uh, China with Hong Kong and and the Uyghurs and the genocide happening there. There's a lot to be proud of, um, and there's a lot in our work that um, you know still come with a. A sense of discontent and a sense of frustration at the at the state of things in the public square. So, uh, maybe looking at both of those things—the things that we're grateful for that we got to be a part of here, policy-wise, maybe some victories that we saw—and then as well as the work that continues uh, to go on. Travis, I'll I'll start with you. What's what's top of mind for you as we as we look back? Yeah, it's it's a. I mean, it's such a 
it's a, it's a tough question to answer. You know, what, what, what's the most significant? Well, especially in a town like DC, where every year is, it's really measured in dog years. So Chelsea, when you said, <laughs> yeah. oh, I've been on the team for three-ish years or so, I'm thinking, what? It could have been, it could have been seven years. Yeah. It could it have been like 10 it. years. <laughs> in yeah, a good way. Feels, feels like true. forever. Feels like 30 years ago that yeah, Travis, you true. and I moved I mean, into this you know, I mean, just, just even over the last few years, we've, we've been able to, We've been able, we've been able to help get you know new regulations um, out the door and supporting those regs. Uh, we've been a part of you know several new uh, several new appropriations riders that were created in the last few years. But I think the the thing that I've been sort of thinking about is our work on the um, Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program and ensuring that that program you know, which, which is not designed for faith-based organizations. And, you know, our listeners probably remember, you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars were pumped uh, through that program to help uh, small businesses as well as uh, faith-based organizations and charities and, and some houses of worship keep the doors open and keep their, uh, keep their lights on uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, we worked with, I mean, of course, you can't get anything done in this town without working in a coalition, but, you know, we worked with, we worked with, um, you know, a great, a great coalition to identify all of the problems with that program for faith-based organizations and to ensure that religious freedom uh, for, for any faith-based organization or, or house of worship that participated in that, that those, that their religious freedom rights would be upheld um, and protected. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. I mean, I, I know, I know dozens of organizations that um, that were able to utilize that program, and it saved them from having to lay people off, uh, saved people, saved organizations from you know having to make pay cuts or, or having to make pay cuts as deep as they would have had to make. And you know, I th- I think you know looking at uh, the U.S. government's response to the pandemic, I mean, I, I think that that program overall is a is a big success story oh, in terms of in terms of helping. Uh, helping organizations uh, make it through, and I'm I'm really proud that faith-based organizations weren't left out in the cold; that they were able to take advantage of that. And it's it's neat when you mention that because it it does. I mean, again, a lot of the show over the years has been giving people, uh, you know, giving people some some ability to sort of uh, see what what it is that their ERLC was doing here. That's a great example. That wasn't something that we had a big communication strategy around. I mean, yes, we were writing articles on that program and helping right. churches think well about it. Dr. Moore wrote a lot of great, great pieces about religious liberty and government assistance in a time of crisis. Because when you think back to where we were at that moment, it was terrifying. Yeah. I, mean, I was I, in I was in Houston, Texas. We we fled. We, we, we <laughs> fled. The Washington Guard was going <laughs> to yeah. shut down the bridges. Yeah. I was like, we got to go. I was like, I don't think that's going to. Okay, see ya. No, I I, uh, I, need, I needed to get back home. But, but no, but, but you, yeah, but it was you, it was a terrifying moment, yeah. and and yet there was also, I mean, it's heady stuff that you're that that we're involved in here, where decisions that are being made are are going to affect the kitchen table issues of millions yeah, upon millions, millions of people. No, it's, it, it was the, I think part of the reason I think why it was such a gratifying project is that at a time of such disconnection, you know, we, you know, we were, we were able to still kind of bring together our allies and and make new friends and deepen, deepen friendships with folks in the administration and, and outside organizations, uh, you know, as you said, Jeff, to, you know, to help steer a program that, that ended up affecting Hundreds of millions of people. Totally. Tens of millions of people. Totally. At a time of just great uncertainty. And if and if government doesn't exist to, you know, to help hold the country up in a moment like that, then I don't know what any of us are doing here. So 
So Jeff, uh, how about you? Man, I it's it's funny as you as you were talking about the Paycheck Protection Program. In my head, it's like all I can think about is 2020 and the pandemic year because so much we were involved in, so much and so much happened, and so much was happening in D.C. with an election too. Um, but I I think one of the one of the rhythms of our work here. Uh, is dictated by the uh, by the nine justices of the Supreme Court and the their whims the, their whims. So what we mean by that is we are involved in cases that come up to the Supreme Court. Sometimes we have briefs arguing for the court to grant cert, which means we want them to hear the case, um, put it on their docket, and then once once they once they do, we're involved in uh, you know with various coalitions, uh, whether it be a justice issue, religious liberty issue, life issue, all sorts of things that we're involved in at the Supreme Court, submitting briefs on those cases, talking about them, having the lawyers who argue the cases on the episode, all of that that goes into it. But then once the case is heard, <laughs> the justices just kind of take it into their building, take it into conference. Um, and then it's their whim on when the case is going to be announced. So uh, usually the kinds of cases that the ERLC is engaged in are going to be announced toward the toward the end of their term, which which comes throughout uh, the month of June usually. So uh, the I, I'm just I'm really proud of the work uh, that our team, both here in DC and with our uh, with our colleagues in Nashville, have been a part of for these last couple of years, responding to those cases when a decision comes down. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a decision that we uh, did not want. It's a decision that we think is 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 bad. Uh, but sometimes it's great. So an example of a, of a of a great decision. I mean, just really recently was a nine to zero unanimous decision in the case uh, Fulton v. Philadelphia, which basically the justices in agreement. Uh, said that what the city of Philadelphia did to kick Catholic social services uh, out of their foster care system was was not right. Um, so that was a win for uh, faith-based foster care providers. But looking uh, looking to last year, back in back in 2020, um, our ERLC brief was actually cited by the justices in the uh, in the majority opinion in a case uh, that was ruled seven to two. Uh, so the case was titled Our Lady Guadalupe School v. Uh, Morrissey Beiru, and it protected the rights of religious organizations to hire individuals who share their religious beliefs. Um, one of the interesting things about being involved in the Supreme Court cases, like I said, is you never know when the case is going to come down. So we do all that we can to be prepared for it, including sometimes drafting articles, drafting our social media strategy, working with our coalition partners about how we're going to respond if it's a 5-4, if it's a 9-0. Writing multiple versions of quotes. Right, writing multiple versions of all of those things. And then sometimes when the... (laughs) When the opinion comes out, yeah, none you, of, you you weren't even oh. none of that work is even you know needed because it's <laughs> like well they did something totally different and then yeah. you have to start over and it's kind of a war room approach. Back in the before times, before COVID, you know we'd order in lunch and all the interns would would be just frantically engaged in in the work and that was fun. Um, in during COVID, you know we'd just pull up a Zoom and everybody would be on Zoom like the Brady Bunch, <laughs> usually waiting on Travis to confirm that our layman reading of the opinion was <laughs> correct as our as our lawyer. And then, yeah, sometimes I think you're going to mention, uh, I was on vacation when this one came out. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Which, so, which, is, which is a testament to the preparation you know, uh, that we do, very, for, yeah. do for that, that yeah. we were able to uh, 
able to execute without you in the jump seat. So. Yeah, no, it was it was it was good, it but happens. that's I think that's <laughs> definitely uh, something uh, to be proud of because it's a, it's a time in which you really get to see the ERLC. I think working in in all the various ways uh, that we work and people take take that responsibility. And we've had a good playbook, and I think we've uh, we've responded well to make the most of the. Uh, the amicus brief practice that we have before the court. Chelsea, what about you? What's something that you're uh, that you're looking back proud of? You know, I think there's, you know, some policies we're able to engage in, like Travis mentioned, that we can very quickly make a big difference um, with our advocacy. And then there's other there's other policies and um, issues that we work on that we, you know, shoulder with a lot of other people and take a long time to change. And one of those issues um, that I've really enjoyed working on and I've seen a lot of change in my years here is the issue of uh, international religious freedom, especially in China. I studied foreign policy in school. I love the international sphere. I, I, I have a natural interest in that. And um, in, our, in our work here, we've worked on behalf of uh, persecuted Christians and Uyghur uh, Muslims in China. And, um, you know, just a, a couple highlights uh, from that, uh, Dr. Moore, along with um, a handful of other grass tops leaders of organizations met with Vice President Mike Pence to highlight this issue. Um, you know, we've, as a, as a team, have um, had numerous meetings on this issue um, with congressional offices, with the previous administration, this current administration, you know, developed personal relationships with with impacted people. Um, and I think for me, this issue is one that, you know, we've seen bills past Congress that we've had a hand in and, you know, a genocide determination that we advocated for. So we've seen some real change, but this issue is one that, you know, I can't fix as much as I'd like to by myself. It takes a, a lot of people, you know, to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction and a long, um, you know, collective work to counter China on the issue of human rights and religious freedom. So it's one that I've enjoyed working on, one I have a personal interest in and Absolutely. one that we've seen some some great movement in. Yeah, just just to add on that, I don't know that we've ever told the story, but, um, but I, I suppose we can now. At the, um, you know, our, our goal was... Uh, you know, I, I think you used the phrase, Chelsea, um, countering China morally. Our, our goal was to try to get the administration to think about countering China, not just on an economic or a military or a foreign aid or a trade, you know, those, those levels, but to try to think about countering China on a moral plane because of the, the ways that they are treating the Uyghur community in their in their country the way that they're treating Christians and the excuses that they're making for why they're doing that has it has a moral impact it has a it has a moral impact on the international order and so we 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 had started to use this language about countering China morally you know over and over in our in our messaging and we had you know we had a, a high level meeting uh, with Vice President Pence summer of nineteen. And we walked in, and on the cover of one of the binders of, of one of the NSC people who was at that meeting, National, National Security Council, National Security Council, he had a binder that uh, the the cover page on the binder said "Countering China Morally." I was so proud of that. You, yes, so good. yes. When you told us about that coming back from, I that, have a picture of it. Yes. Uh, well, I don't know that you should have said that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, when you showed us the picture of it, uh, it, it, it was, I mean, it, yes. Boring. I mean, it was amazing because that, like you said, that was kind of our uh, internal phrase for 
that umbrella of work that we were doing right. and, yeah, the, and what we were trying to work. get. But yeah, to see that on the briefing binder for the vice president and the other government officials yeah. that were there in that room from something like the National Security Council. Yeah. It's, that means it's, it's real. You know, it's it's a small thing, but it is, you know, but it is significant. And, you know, and the challenge, of course, as you were saying, Chelsea, is that, that work continues. I mean, and and it's one of the it's one of the features of of DC is that things things are always changing and it's a new set of personalities and it's a new set of personnel uh, that you have to, you have to continue that work. So, you know, we, we look forward to continuing to call upon the administration to, to counter China morally. And, and thankfully that, that is something that is continuing in a bipartisan fashion, not only on the Hill, but also uh, thankfully from one administration uh, to the next. I mean, Secretary Pompeo, designated it as a as a designated China's genocide against the Uyghurs on his last day. Secretary Blinken um, right after that said that is our opinion too. And there's work to exactly. be done. And yeah. um and so let's I mean speaking of the work that's still to be done, I mean Chelsea, let's let's kind of have that as a turning point uh with you. What what is something in our work that you look at that you go, man, this is still a point of discontent and frustration for me and there's still work to be done on it. I'm gonna go back to China again. I think, you know, there's a whole host of, of problems we can work on in our own country, and we certainly need to, um, you know, put our heads down and do the work here. But, um, you know, kind of on a high level, um, you know, China is setting out or is planning to be the world's great superpower. They are planning to usurp the U.S. in that. Um, and I think the U.S. has an incredible role to play in leading not only Western countries, but leading the world in democracy and freedom and um, a true vision of human rights. Mm. Um, you know, the U.S. has been critical of us, which I think is insane considering— uh, China has been critical oh, of us. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, which is crazy considering they have an ongoing genocide in their right. country and considering how they, you know, censor their own citizens. Um, so I think kind of that broader— a, a broader uh, vision of of countering China on on a whole host of, of issues. You know, one of their big initiatives is their Belt and Road Initiative, which is their modern Silk Road. And I think um, you know, policymakers, activists, you know, we all need to be thinking through how to continue countering China, like Travis said, on all of these uh, levels, because they're not only exporting, you know. They're exporting their values as they're mm. trying to become the world's great superpower. And yeah. I think the U.S. really does have an incredibly important role to play in continuing to share our vision of human flourishing and, um, you know, of true human rights. So I think, you know, I, I would say China is something I've enjoyed. And I think we've seen great success in, but there's a lot more work to be done there. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that is still so... There's so much work to still be done on 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 it from a policy standpoint, and, and then just a broader political and cultural standpoint uh, is, and maybe we'll we'll use some alliteration here. So your frustration is China, my frustration is Congress. <laughs> uh, Chelsea, you mentioned uh, the Uvalde event episode, a time to build. One thing he said in that in that conversation that's really stuck with me is when you look at the debates that are happening in Congress about federal policy. We're not talking about how to prepare the country economically, militarily, culturally, all of those things. We're not talking about how to prepare the country for 2040. And yet 2040 is very close. We are very close to 2040. And when you think about wild. how many changes <laughs> yeah. are coming for us, technology changes, all sorts of things, 
we're just not having any serious debates or conversations about the future. It's a lot of grievance. Uh, and to use a phrase from uh, Yuval, uh, everybody is looking at their institutional position as a platform, not a platform from which to make a difference uh, in and in, in pursue different policies that they want to bring forward that they think will be better for the country, but simply as a platform to, quote, stand and yell. <laughs> when you hear Yuval talk about that, standing and yelling, it's all you see for the majority of uh, members of Congress. And there, and there are some there doing great work, and we've had the privilege over these last couple of years to, to meet those men and women and see them behind the scenes actually trying to work on good policy. But but by and large, uh, Congress is, you know, to quote another uh, another thinker of our time, Jenna Goldberg calls them a parliamentary abundance. And uh, <laughs> I think that is accurate and it is very frustrating. And I think, you know, ultimately it's up to their, their voters to hold them accountable to say, no, we want to reward you for actually working on these issues because there there are so many issues where there's 70%. I mean, even, even in like pro-life issues that are super contentious, on the issue of abortion, there are plenty of issues that have a lot of support uh, uh, with the American people, and uh, and I I just I would hope that voters eventually would begin to uh, start rewarding rewarding those who are finding ways to work together uh, rather than just you know recording videos of themselves in their offices pledging allegiance to the flag and such. Well, let me let me Travis. Sort of, what about you? Yeah, let me sort of pick up on that theme because it's it's related to you know, some of the unfinished work that's, that is still ahead of us. And, you know, I, I sort of, I think about a couple of bills that we, that we have worked on. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act is one example of this as, as a bill that, you know, a bill that has broad bipartisan support that, that should become law. Um, but I also think about another one. I mean, we, you know, we, we were very close to passing uh, a bill called the Conscience Protection Act that would have uh, sort of fortified the rights of conscience that that already exist for medical professionals uh, to refuse to participate in uh, in abortions to the extent that they have uh, religious or moral objections to to participating in abortion. And you know, we we were very close to getting uh, to getting that bill passed uh, in in 2017 um, and in 2018 at, at the at the very end um, of the of Republican control. Of the House of Representatives, uh, but we weren't, we weren't able to get it done. And you know, and I think you know, there there's w- one of the things that I've I think I've learned from that is that you know the in this town, especially now, the perfect is is often the enemy of the good. And um, and and part of the problem with that is that um, compromise is not uh, or accepting less than you would want. Uh, is is not in fashion these days. It's hard to sell that to your voters. It's hard to explain to them why uh, why you made a compromise uh, because there are a lot of voices um, on the edge on the edges of, of both parties uh, demanding um, a maximalist approach. And anything less than that is is not just unacceptable. It's not just not good enough. But also, uh, you are wrong, or you know, or you are in sin, or uh, you are uh, you know you are evil. Uh, for for pursuing you know an incremental approach or for or for pursuing or for or for pursuing something that's that's less than all of what you would want, um, and the reality is nobody ever gets all of, all of what they want uh, in Washington. You know you you never have uh, that kind of maximal 
uh, control here. You always have to compromise. You always have to take a little bit less uh, than than you were hoping for, um, and it it is that you know it's those sorts of compromises that that keep the work of DC moving forward. At least have kept it uh, moving forward. And you know I think unfortunately we're we're seeing that we're seeing that breakdown all over the place, um, in part because. Um, you know, this is a, just a, another dimension of what you were talking about, Jeff, in terms of kind of the performative aspect of, of, of Congress these days. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the dimension that a lot of uh, an, an, an unfortunate number of members, uh, I, I think, see themselves as uh, pundits rather than uh, dealmakers and uh, or, or as politicians or as, uh, as legislators. And so, you know, I, I think there are you know, I, I don't. I don't have a lot of great solutions for this. I mean, uh, I, I guess we just have to recommend reading Yuval's book. Uh, he <laughs> he he provides some he provides some answers to that. Um, but you know, I think a big part of it is that we have to demand something different from our legislators. They're they're giving us what they think we want, um, and and so we we have to, you know, we have to to demand something different. And 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 until we do, uh, they we're we're going to keep getting what we've got. Well, it. You know, as I as I think about all all that we've worked on, both those things that are frustrating as well as those things that we feel a sense of gratitude to have seen cross the finish line. Um, I, I know it might be it might be cheesy to say, but I mean it, and you can't say it enough that it's been one amazing ride. And uh, at the top of the list of things I'm grateful for is to have uh, to have been in the trenches uh, with with both of you. As well as with uh, with our other uh, ERLC Leland House colleagues, uh, Brooke Kramer, Stephen Harris, Lauren Conkle, uh, Matt Hawkins, uh, and Ben Harbaugh most most recently, um, and uh, it's it's been um, it's been a gift uh, to to work in Washington in this and, and along with I mean too many interns to count I mean too who, many interns to who count, have yes. you know who have really done the yeoman's work to to help propel our, our work forward well and on the note of the interns we were talking about favorite podcast episodes I'm going to go ahead and give an honorable mention here to <laughs> all of our intern intern episodes that we that we do with them uh, those are often uh, you know a lot of people listen to those um, you know which I guess it's them forwarding to their uh, to their college buddies and so their, it's a lot their, of moms who their moms who are <laughs> listening to it, but it actually is you know those episodes have been a great picture into our work because our interns they did real work and man they I mean we were talking about earlier punching above our weight they helped us do that no so it's uh, it's been a gift and uh, thanks Chelsea and Travis for on behalf of all those all those people uh, who who have been a part of what we've been a part of here. So, Chelsea, Travis, thank you for uh, reflecting with me on the work that we've been able to be a part of, the work that goes on. Uh, and, uh, and next, I'm looking forward to our conversation with David French. David, thanks for joining Chelsea, Travis, and me today. As I, as I mentioned uh, in my email to you and at the intro of, of this show, when, when we were thinking about who, who we could have on as a final guest uh, for this team on uh, the Capital Conversations podcast of URLC, you were at the absolute top of that list. So we're so thankful and grateful that you, uh, that you made the time to talk with us about some of these issues today. Well, thanks for having me. It's an, it's an honor. I appreciate it. David, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us, David. I, I don't know if this is the time to bring this up, but this this is actually not a podcast recording. This is just a um, an excuse to get you on. We were hoping to do an exorcism uh, with you today. Oh, um, 
In all fairness, I'm only possibly possessed. I'm only possessed. <laughs> well, yeah. For those who don't, I'm sure listeners are going, "What? What are you talking about?" Um, a, a former Trump administration lawyer who is—I don't know—is it fair to? Is it? Is it too much to say he's not a fan uh, of me? <laughs> he doesn't I, you know, seem I, to me to be a fan, but I, you know, you want to be—you want to be charitable. Um, and not mischaracterize someone's views of you. But I wrote something where I was saying, I wrote something with three other uh, co-authors and I uh, made an argument in the New York Times that a lot of these anti-CRT bills are just a bad idea. They're too broad and they're too vague and they're banning the discussion of ideas when there are better ways to deal with abuses and, and injustices that arise out of, you know, CRT-like concepts. And so... This former Trump administration lawyer tweeted, and I quote, and so this is why I, I'm just kind of not sure where he stands. If I have to hear the kind of half-blanked, weak, I disagree with David French, but you have to admit he's a fundamentally decent person. Again, he's not. On any non-Gnostic objective definition of morality, he's depraved with broken will and reason, possibly possessed. So I think not a fan. So when I yeah. when I posted on our uh, on our ERLC Slack that uh, we were going to be having you on for this for this conversation, uh, one of our colleagues, Joe Carter, asked uh, and he linked to that tweet and he said, "Are you guys planning on doing an exorcism on David or what's the what's the show going to be about?" So, yeah, what a what an intro to the state of discourse, former former administration officials. This isn't just you know Twitter Twitter trolling. This is. Uh, this is, you know, the, the, yeah, exactly. The internet of beefs made, made <laughs> all too real. But it was open-minded. I mean, like, you got to appreciate the open-mindedness. <laughs> possibly. Possibly possessed. Possibly. I mean, it's just, possibly. it's just raising questions, really. Possibly. So it gives, right. you know, it gives me an opportunity to rebut. There you well, go. And, and arguably, yeah. he's, he's letting you off the hook, you know. Um, yeah, but Absolutely. I, anyway, I, I invoked this, but I, I also wanted to share, and I texted you this, uh, this David, but, um, the other day I was listening to a podcast that you were on and my wife who hates politics. Um, and, uh, it, it's the reason we don't, she's the reason we don't live on the Hill. I mean, she, she <laughs> could not stand it. Um, you know, but she, she came in and she said, Oh, what is, what's David talking about? I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard that yet. It was, it wasn't dispatch podcast because she listens to every dispatch podcast um, oh, that's and, awesome. and, and especially it. yours. So, um, so thanks for, thank you for, uh, for your voice, David, you are, you jump into, uh, well, I don't know a fight that you're not involved in right now, I've got a problem. I need to No, I, I'm not into everything. Like I literally don't know what's happening in the Stanley cup right now. So, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, is hockey even a real sport? I mean, come on. <laughs> um, You're going to be canceled for that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm from I'm from Texas, so it's it's too hot for ice in your lemonade down there. <laughs> so let's, uh, David. Let's just let's just jump in, um, and I, I think it might be helpful here at the start for a refresher of your biography for our listeners, because you weren't always a journalist. Uh, no, but I think I mean a lot of people. Uh, are most familiar with you from your bylines, formerly at National sure. Review, Time Magazine, now at at the Dispatch. Um, so why don't why don't you give folks a, a bit more about your biography and the ways in which you've been involved in these issues that we're going to talk about today and that we engage at the at the ERLC? Yeah. So uh, 
my pro-life activism dates all the way back to 1990. Um, I was a college student at Lipscomb University and proposed some reforms to our college. I was on the student government proposing some reforms to some of our college policies to try to help people choose life in difficult circumstances, formed the first um, dedicated student-led pro-life group at Harvard Law School in 1991. Uh, After I graduated, had my first volunteer to my first religious liberty case and free speech case in 1992 before I graduated. And then after I graduated in 94, did constitutional free speech litigation, due process, religious freedom uh, for 21 years after that. I was um, I started off doing it sort of on the side pro bono, and then I became president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. I was a senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice. And so, yeah, I, there is one point I think that I may have had the distinction of having sued more universities than any living lawyer. <laughs> um, so certainly on free speech grounds, certainly nice. on free speech grounds. So do they give so medals I, for that? I've not seen one yet, but <laughs> okay. in 2015, I, I had, I had been litigating and litigating and litigating and I, but I'd also been writing a lot on the side. And in 2015, I decided to transition to writing full time. And that's when I joined national review and Donald Trump came down the escalator the very next month, and then I didn't have a vacation for five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> the number of times that there have been a uh, sort of reference to the before times, yeah, um, in just my time here in DC and, and working on these issues at the ERLC are pretty remarkable. I mean, that obviously the escalator is the first sort of the before times, but now with COVID. You had the before times, yeah, and then January six. You had the before times. I mean, it's I'm I'm ready for some precedented uh, times for all this. So let me <laughs> yeah. let me ask you. I mean, you so you've been involved in um, if if there's a coalition that ERLC engages on these issues, you had a role in one of those coalitions: religious liberty, yeah. life, all these things. Yeah. Um, what has happened? What has happened over the over the last five years? Because as I'm as I'm looking back on it, it's. Uh, it's not great, Bob. And ah. the factions, the fractures, they're everywhere. You know, I, I've I've told friends that it, it's hard looking at the state of Christian public square engagement because so many coalitions are just, they're fractured. Some are sort of a hot war of ideas. Mm-hmm. Some are in this sort of stage of a cold war. I mean, is it as simple as looking at the politics um, of it all, or is is there more uh, going on there? Have we been headed in this direction for a longer time? Because you're somebody who's been in these fights for for decades now. So there's a couple of things. If you're going to talk, so we have to pull back and we ask: Are we talking about politics and culture? Or are we talking about discrete issues? So if you're talking, if you if you're talking about, say, for example, religious liberty, we're really on about a 30 year path towards increased religious liberty but also increased contention around religious liberty. So if you go back to 1990 in this case um, called Employment Division v. Smith, which those of us who have long litigated in religious liberty, that we, we speak about that in sort of hushed tones, like people speak, they don't say the name Voldemort, you know? <laughs> it's like the case that shall not be named. And cer- cer- certainly the author of that opinion shall not be named. Or, or not well, associated with that case. 
Well, the th- weird thing is that Scalia, Scalia right. wrote the employment division fees. Come on. I mean, it's just, a, it just goes to show there's nobody that's perfect, right? Um, but anyway, so for about the past 30 years, there's been a steady expansion of religious liberty rights. Going even before then, there's been a steady expansion of free speech rights. Like the, when you look at the actual legal doctrines that we live under, there's been win after win after win after win after win. But at the same time, even as these rights have expanded, the sense of alarm and urgency over religious liberty has grown and grown and grown and grown. And part of this is because there's this dynamic, and I put it in a, in a piece that says the Walls are high and strong, but the cannon fire is real. So in other words, the attacks on religious liberty are very real, but the citadel of religious liberty is very strong. And so what ends up happening is you can look and see, oh, look at this challenge to religious liberty here or there or here or there, and they're real and and they're serious, but they're also going to (laughs) lose. (laughs) The attack on religious liberty, a a perfect example is there's a coalition of people now suing the Department of Education to try to get the um, religious exemption in Title IX declared unconstitutional. So that's a real lawsuit actually filed trying to get religious exemption struck out of federal law, but they're going to (laughs) lose. So, you know, that's that's kind of the as the culture war has escalated, these conflicts have escalated, but the religious liberty protections have only grown. And you can also talk about this. In the life arena as well, the number of pro-life laws that were passed in the last five years of the Obama presidency, more pro-life laws passed in those last five years than any time since Roe was decided. During the Obama presidency, the abortion rate in the United States dropped below the rate that existed at the time Roe was decided. So all of that stuff is good news, but at the same time, you know, abortion is still legal and there's way too many abortions. And abortion is just as contentious as it ever was in American politics. But if you're talking about the larger culture, aside from the discrete issues, one of the ironies here is that just as a lot of Christians were making real progress on the issues that seemed to animate them the most, the sense of catastrophe was also increasing. And it's that sense of catastrophe that is motivating an awful lot of polarization in this country, an awful lot, a lot Mm. of activism that is driven by an enormous amount of fear. And so, you know, on the one hand, if you're a religious liberty lawyer, if you're a pro-life lawyer, you're looking at a lot of the developments of the last really 30 years. 30 years is a good marker. The last 30 years, because around 30 years ago when the abortion ratio reached a peak or was bumping along at its peak, 30 years ago was when Employment Division v. Smith was decided. 30 years ago was when the crime rate was nearly at its apex. And there has been just a, a, a market improvement in a lot of these things in the last 30 years. But at the same time, our sense of alarm has gone way up, way up to the point where we're now in a situation called negative partisanship or negative polarization, which means that I'm motivated by in my politics more my, by my opposition to the other side than I am by the positions my own side takes, which is a very toxic form of politics. It's motivated mainly by animosity. And that that's one of the things that we are dealing with now is politics hmm. motivated by animosity, which is very, creates a very difficult culture for Christians to navigate. 
and you did not know you were getting that long of a filibuster when you asked the question. <laughs> I, I'm glad you landed on on negative partisanship because that's something that we've talked about on this show often over the last three to five years. Um, but I, I would also imagine that your your experience uh, serving in our armed forces overseas and then coming back to the United States, seeing actual real enemies that want to kill us, changes <laughs> yeah. the way you view, you know, changes the way that those arguments about negative partisanship, the end of our country is near. If yeah. our enemy, yeah. if our political enemy uh, attains power, that just changes your perspective. Oh, is that right? yeah, totally, totally. You know, I I used to be a lot more partisan than I am Um and then, you know, I used to, I used to be guilty, uh, not, not to the extent that we have now, like America is going to be over if this party wins or this party wins, but I used to be a lot more dark in a lot of my political rhetoric about political opponents. And, and I remember saying this really dumb thing before I deployed to Iraq in 2007. I said, you know, somebody asked me, why was I in the military and why was I also a religious liberty lawyer? Because I was in the reserves in the military and then in my civilian job was religious liberty and pro-life work. And I said, well, because I think the two great threats to America are the far left at home and jihadists abroad. And I said this at a conservative conference and everyone cheered, yay, and, you know, felt good about myself. And, and then I deploy and I see what an actual enemy is like, like, you know, I, I went to law school in about the bluest, some of the bluest places in America. I mean, at Cambridge, Massachusetts, I went to first year of my marriage was in a very blue Manhattan. My son was born when we lived in very blue Ithaca, New York, I had a good life in all of those places. I didn't agree with a lot of their policies, but I had a good life in all of those places. If I had tried to like bring my family to Balad Ruz, Iraq during the surge, we'd be dead in minutes. You know, there's just a difference here. And yeah. and I remember feeling ashamed of that even as I was there. And so I came home from Iraq and I was moving to be less partisan right at the time when American culture was really taking off on more partisanship. Yeah. And so I was sort of like the fish slowly leaving the water <laughs> to the point where now I feel in many ways like a fish almost all the way out of the water, just kind of alienated from the political culture and to a large degree. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I hope you are enjoying this special final show. We're going to wrap part one here and be back next week for part two with the rest of our conversation with David French. And the rest of that conversation with David, we talk about the state of religious liberty, both legally and culturally the pro-life movement and policies, and the next challenge to Roe versus Wade at the Supreme Court. And we talk about January 6th and what it means for the future of the American Democratic Republic. So it is a wide-ranging conversation and you are not going to want to miss it. So come back next week for part two and the rest of that conversation that Travis, Chelsea, and I had with David French. And as always here, one last time, you can send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community who you think might appreciate what we've been talking about here on this episode. And be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations as well as the ERLC podcast so you never miss an episode and resources from the ERLC. Resources from today's episode, like those favorite podcast interviews we mentioned at the top of the show, are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today for part one, and we look forward to being back together with you next week. <laughs>